Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Hi everyone, um, I've had a few weeks off recording and I was supposed to take the whole month off while I'm packing to move. I'm surrounded by boxes and pure chaos, but I had the chance to chat with some more exciting guests and to be honest, I really love doing this so I couldn't stay away. In this episode, we're going to be talking about some eight-legged friends who I'm sure strike fear into many of you listening, but my guest T. Francis is here to persuade you that they are nothing to be feared and in fact are complex and fascinating creatures. Hi T, thanks for joining me. Hi. <laughs> so I'm sure the audience have guessed, but could you introduce what we're going to be talking about today? Uh, yes, the love of my life, spiders. Um, in just about any context that pops them into my mind for the day, I think. So pretty much my mission in life is to get people to be more accepting of spiders and to have a little bit more consideration for and understanding of them because it's a very common theme that, you know, when people encounter a spider, they're a bit scared of it. They might smash it on site. They might, you know, scream, kill it with fire and run in the other direction. And, you know, in most, in the very, very, very vast majority of situations, it's completely unnecessary and there's actually nothing to be afraid of. So my mission, particularly on Twitter, is to spread the spider love. And that's why I'm here today. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm really excited because I, I I love spiders, but I've done this before um, on another episode with wasps and we were talking about wasps and sort of common misconceptions. You know, I've just said to you beforehand that I see them as terrifying weaponized bundles of fury, but that's not what they are at all. So I'm hoping that we can have the same impact um, in this conversation. But first, as I do with all my guests, could you just rewind a little bit and talk to me about how you how you got here? How did you become the, the spider person of Twitter? <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of many spider people on twitter there are so many <laughs> awesome spider people on twitter um for me personally it's been a lifelong thing um i've been interested in animals nature just about anything to do with the natural world ever since i could look at pictures in books and you know since i was really really little uh spiders it, it's one of those things it's strange because like my auntie who has always been very present in my life is absolutely terrified of them and in a lot of cases when a child has somebody who is a prominent figure in their life very very early on who's terrified of spiders the fear is kind of transferred onto them but it bypassed me completely I've always been very sort of hands-on want to look at them want to get up close and sort of you know see what they're all about so when I was a little girl um really little when most little girls might have had an invisible friend I've said this in other podcasts before this is me saying the same thing again I had an invisible pet spider called Cyril <laughs> who lived in the bath <laughs> perfectly normal um but yeah so it's always been something that has featured very heavily in my life and when I was I think 17 or 18 um, my boyfriend at the time bought me my very first tarantula so I went from sort of paying attention to what was around me in you know in the UK our, our native spiders are just sort of like being interested drawing them a lot looking at pictures of them like learning about them to now owning my own tarantula and that just it, it just snowballed completely from there like the fascination just completely took off so there's been I think you know there's there's a pre-existing interest then I kind of got into it via the exotic pet scene kind of thing. Um, I learned a lot about that whole area, like exotic animal keeping and a lot of the problems that go along with it, a lot of the conservation issues. Um, and so I've taken a big step away from all of that in recent years, just because I don't feel comfortable with sort of involving myself in that. So now it's kind of gone back. I've still got tarantulas. I've still got you know spiders in here because some of them will live for like 20, 25 years. They're not the kind of thing that just sort of go away if you end up with an adult female. Um, 
so I still have spiders, but it's not something that I'm going out and like buying more and more of. Uh, so now I'm back to studying wild spiders. So not just spiders in this country, but also spiders in other countries as well. Um, I work with I work remotely with a lab in Vancouver um, who study the behavioral ecology of web building spiders in uh, Ecuador. And so I help them with a lot of data handling and stuff online um, and do a lot of work with them, sort of looking at all kinds of different spiders. So that's kind of, yeah, that's where it's that's where it's at for me. There is so I have got an educational background in this kind of thing as well. I mean, I do have a degree in biology, animal biology and ecology, and I am looking at um, furthering my education, taking it on to doing a master's and possible eventual PhD. But right now I'm quite content to just involve myself um, out of passion you know and just sort of get involved with studies that are being done um with other people who are doing this kind of thing so although it's not in an official capacity at the moment it's it's still very much a a big part of my life well no absolutely and I love I love that um there's been a couple of my guests that aren't sort of PhDs or professors and stuff and I think it's amazing to just show people that you don't have to you know you don't have to be have a PhD to be passionate and have an impact on a subject you know you're you're here you're here working in it and sort of doing it and here talking to me about it and I just I just think that's amazing um so thank you for being here again um can we start can we start then with those the the ones closest to home the ones that we find in our in our British homes you know what we're going to find in our homes why are people so scared of them and should people be scared of them? I know the answer to that, but you know, <laughs> let's persuade people <laughs> that they shouldn't. <laughs> I look around the room that I'm sitting in right now. I can see five or six spiders um, up in the corners of my rooms. They, in the UK and in other countries in the world, the spiders that I'm talking about at the moment will be very familiar to a lot of people. They're commonly known as cellar spiders. They are the long-legged spindly ones that hang out in corners up in the you know, up in the top corners of your room and in dark places. Mine now, yeah. 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 So like <laughs> I've got a lot of them. When they start breeding, I've I've counted up to 56 of them in this room in my bathroom before now, just those two rooms. So they're everywhere. Um, they're not the only spiders that I find in here. I find other species in here too. And that's literally without me even leaving my bedroom. So spiders are everywhere. And no, they're not something to be afraid of. And I can say that with confidence, even to people who live in countries where there are more medically significantly venomous species than we have here. Now, in the UK, we don't have any species of spider that live around us that can do you any any damage. You'll read otherwise in the papers, you'll read that people have been bitten by false widows and they're losing limbs and they're getting these horrible flesh eaten, you know, rotting, necrotizing wounds. and all It's nonsense. It's not real like if people end up with that kind of injury from a spider bite it's not from the spider it's from a secondary infection a bacterial infection like mrsa or something like that and i can tell you that a hundred percent because the venom that the spiders we're talking about possess is not capable of causing that kind of damage to human tissue it's not a cytotoxic venom it's a neurotoxic venom which means that if it were potent enough to have a noticeable effect on you it wouldn't be in the form of wounds or like lesions or anything on your skin it would be something like heart palpitations shortness of breath that kind of thing um but again we don't have anything in this country that has a potent enough venom to do any damage to a human being Very few of the species of spiders that we have living in the UK are even capable of breaking your skin. Most spiders will try, but they just they don't have the strength. They don't have big enough fangs. They they can't break through human skin. So a lot of the things that you hear about spider bites and, you know, why you should be afraid of things like false widows and, you know, all kinds of stuff that you read in the papers on slow news days. um, It's 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 hyperbole. It's all massively sensationalized to sell papers. And it's kind of it's carried by this very common sort of misconception that spiders are inherently bad or, you know, something to be um, disgusted by or afraid of. And that that's very deeply ingrained in just the media in general, not just newspapers and, you know, that kind of thing, but also pop culture, you know, um, films, TV, even music. You know, spiders are always used as a tool for creating a creepy atmosphere or setting the scene of something, you know, dark and not good. Um, and sometimes outright portrayed as something terrifying and to be deathly afraid of. So, you know, they're kind of up against it in terms of the reputation that we have created for them. 
Um, so in terms of species in the UK, the kind of spiders that we commonly encounter in our homes. So as I mentioned, the cellar spider, um, a lot of people will be familiar with uh, giant house spiders that you see running around on the floor. Are they the ones that are like the size of your hand? That just Really, really big ones. Yeah, yeah. really. <laughs> I mean, they are 80% legs. So like they're not huge, great big meaty things, but they have got a decent leg span on them. So they do look massive and they move extremely fast. Um, <laughs> And we're used to seeing the males, uh, adult males out and about looking for females in sort of late summer, early autumn. Um, and I mean, yeah, I can understand if you don't like spiders being kind of alarmed by seeing one of those scooting across your floor, because <laughs> I've seen hamsters that are like a similar sort of, you know, take up a similar kind of uh, make a similar sort of footprint, like in terms of their size. But um, they're nothing to be afraid of. The The thing that I hear a lot of people say about those in particular is. Uh, that they run at you and that they they sort of like will come at you and that's not strictly true either so it can be said that you might sort of perceive some of their behavior as them running towards you but it's not because they're running towards you because they want to do anything to you they're running towards you because they've misinterpreted something so whether you're casting a shadow and they see a dark area and they think oh safety I'm going to go and run there or whether they've sensed a vibration that they're responding to if they're hunting and they're looking for prey you know and they they sense a vibration they think might be prey they may run towards it in the case of the adult males uh, male and female spiders of the same species will communicate with each other via tapping and vibrating you know so the males are very sort of in tune with vibrations so if they feel something and they think oh maybe it's a female they may dart towards it so it's kind of it's a behavioral thing that's based on their instincts and what it is they're doing it's not something like they're trying to attack you or they want to bite you the minute they realize that they've run at a human they are going to hightail it out of there at lightning speed they don't want to be anywhere near you so yeah i mean i can see where people who don't have the knowledge behind these of these things who who don't understand like why they do these things could perhaps interpret that kind of behavior as being a bit alarming and maybe something aggressive that they need to be worried about but uh, I spend all my time on Twitter telling people that it's nothing to be afraid of and I will do that till the day I die probably (laughs) well no exactly I mean like you're always going to be alarmed if something unexpected comes comes at you you know like I've been in I was in um the supermarket car park the other day and a rat sort of ran out from the bushes and I love rats you know not a problem but it did make me go ooh because I just wasn't <laughs> expecting it you know so yeah. if there's this big thing running across your living room floor you are going to go ooh but you yeah. know I suppose it's all about the reaction you have and why I suppose it's interesting that you said about um kids sort of developing the fear based on seeing a a parent or someone close to them um, sort of having the same reaction um why do you think spiders have this you know this reputation where did it come from is it something that's sort of ingrained in us for like millennia or is it a is it a new thing It's it's an interesting topic, actually, because there's a lot of speculation as to where it comes from. Some people will argue that it's an innate thing that is a throwback to when we lived in closer proximity to spiders, you know, in their natural habitats and, you know, were at higher risk in certain parts of the world of being bitten by something that could do a serious damage. Um, but I don't necessarily buy into that personally, um, because even back then, you know, there wouldn't have been that much difference in terms of the species that were around and the potency of their venom and the way they used to use it. There are so few species of spider in the world that are capable of killing a human being, um, unless we're talking about somebody with pre-existing health conditions or, you know, a baby or something like that. Like if we just use a regular healthy adult as an example, not to be ableist or anything, but, you know, just for the, just for the sake of making the point, uh, there's only a, f- a very small handful of species of spider in the world that are only found in, you know, very specific areas. They're not very widespread um, that can actually do you any like mortal damage they, that can kill you. So we're talking about things like Sydney funnel web spiders in Australia. We're talking about wandering spiders in South America, those kind of things. They have got a potentially deadly bite. Um Everything else that has what would be considered a medically significant bite, and by that I mean venom that is potent enough to cause discomfort and potential health problems, 
but not potent enough to kill a human outright. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot more of those around. So in America, um, you'll encounter things like black widows in most areas. Um, in certain parts of the USA, you'll encounter things like brown recluses. Um, there's recluse species in the Mediterranean and parts of Europe and Asia. And, you know, you'll find species of spider that have a kind of like unpleasant, sort of fairly potent venom, but not deadly um, in a lot of places. But when you think about how many spider species there are in the world, so I mean, I, my memory is terrible. The last I checked, it was, I don't know, like, I can't remember if it was 40-something or 60-something thousand. I feel like that should be firmly ingrained in my brain, but it <laughs> isn't. So I'm sorry. I'm just being real. I'm being honest. I don't know, okay? <laughs> I could Google it and pretend like I know everything, but I'm not going to do that. So it's somewhere, <laughs> we will say between like 40 to 60,000 species of spider. Tiny percentage of those can kill you. So we're talking about a throwback um fear of them because of you know trying to preserve life i suppose you know being afraid of something that would potentially kill you i just don't see how that is a big enough reason like they're not a big enough threat for that to be something that we would still be carrying with us now in terms of like innate like instincts to be afraid of something so i think there's a certain amount of um caution of them because they're you tend to find them in kind of like darker places and like damp places and places that you might be on high alert just because it's not like, um, to be fair, they're everywhere. You'd find one in a bright, sunny meadow full of wildflowers, which is a happy place to be. So like that, you know, that's neither here nor there either, but like people tend to associate them with these places. So I think there's a certain amount of caution about them because of that. But I think most of it is, it's our own sort of construct. We have, use them because of their association with sort of like dark dingy places and like cobwebs but that's really annoying i need to turn my email off i'm so sorry um (laughs) the funny thing is that was an email from the international society of arachnologists so it was relevant they know they They can hear you (laughs) yeah so anyway um going back to the the sort of like phobia element like where it comes from i think mostly there is a bit of a bit of it is rooted in us not really understanding them very well and being just wary of them in general but a lot of it is down to how we use them in media and how we portray them in you know film and tv and how we use them as I don't know something to get people whipped up into a state of hysteria I don't know if you saw recently um, these stories that have been in the news about the spiders in uh, America these um large orb weaving spiders golden orb weavers they call them I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right but the the joro spider okay. is the really big golden orb weaving spider um a species of trichonephala um which is native to uh Japan and surrounding areas it's ended up in America it's been in I want to say Georgia and North Carolina for we'll say since I think it's since 2013 so they've been there for a long time already but somehow someone picked up a story about them uh, spreading across, you know, in, in, expanding their range in the eastern United States. And it got turned into this huge, great, big, like sensationalized giant parachuting spiders taking over the east coast of the USA. <laughs> be afraid. Be very afraid. They're coming for your families. Not like the media to sensationalize. I know. Right. So I, I, I had to do. <laughs> for my own sanity I had to do like a debunking Twitter thread where I was like we need to talk about this and we need to, we need to sort of like examine what this is actually about and what is fact and what is fiction and what is being used to sell papers or you know what is being used as clickbait here they're not new like they've been in the states for however long nine years already not only that, but the United States has its own trichonephala species already present that has been there for a long time and people are already familiar with that is, in a lot of cases, somewhat indistinguishable from these um, these new, these Joro ones. Only the females get massive. The males stay super tiny. You wouldn't even notice one. As far as this parachuting thing is concerned, that's ballooning. Ballooning is a behavior that tiny spiders use to get around. So they'll let out a tiny little strand of silk, allow that to get picked up by an electromagnetic current and they get carried off on it. Sometimes they'll be up in like, you know, a different layer of the atmosphere, like 
thousands of feet up in the air because they've been carried off up there and it's like there's nothing up there but spiders that are taken a bit too far you know um so yeah they do balloon but like the way these articles were portraying it is that you're going to have these ones that are the size of your hand like landing military attack parachuting in on you yeah, yeah. and it's like <laughs> Okay, come on. We do remember that physics exists, right? They can't do that. They they can't fly. They can't get up high enough to parachute down on you by ballooning when they're that size. Like it's not physically possible. So they're skimming over these really crucial details that would explain all of this in a much more sort of uh, calm and collected and this isn't anything to be afraid of kind of way. But of course, that doesn't sell papers or ad space, you know, so obviously they've they've gone overboard with it but the thing that annoys me the most about this is they will seek out experts to talk to or they will find um you know a scientific paper or something to reference they've got all of the answers right there from science and they'll cherry pick the bits that fit their agenda of like you know how they sound terrible and completely overlook all of the stuff that makes sense and that is going to put people's minds at ease now in the grand scheme of things, that may sound like a non-issue to a lot of people. It's like, okay, so people are afraid of spiders, big deal. But it is a big deal because what happens is people who don't have the same sort of level of interest as myself or you know other spider enthusiasts out there are not going to be able to tell one spider species from the next. They're going to see a spider. They're going to immediately remember all of this sensationalized stuff that they've read about why there's something to be afraid of and why they're inherently bad. And they're just going to kill it. Mm -hmm. I've seen it so many times. I lived with an arachnophobe when I was living in um, LA and she used to do it. She'd kill a spider and then she'd send me a photo of a spider smeared across her wall. And she'd be like, what kind of spider is this? I'm like, it's a dead spider. I can't tell you any more than that. Stop doing it. I'm literally in the next room. I will come and get it. So people just do it. It's like it's, they don't even think about it. It's just like, oh, no, kill it, kill it. Um, right. That's that's that done. I, I wonder what that was. You know, that's the kind of thing that I want to try and stop, because the more people who do that, the more impact it has on, you know, spider numbers, the more that then has an impact on other invertebrate numbers. We are facing problems with, you know, the loss of insect species and other invertebrate species because of the damage we're doing to the environment anyway, on a larger scale. So we really need to be doing what we can to preserve what we've got rather than just wantonly kill it because we don't understand it or because a newspaper said it's something to be afraid of. So that's kind of like what my whole mission is, is to try and open people's minds to them, uh, get them to understand that there are loads of different spiders out there, loads of different species, and they are far more beneficial to us than they are something to be afraid of. And that's pretty much the pretty much the crux of everything that I'm doing when I'm communicating this online via photos or just talking about them on Twitter or podcast interviews, all this kind of thing. No, and I think it's I think it's amazing and so important. I mean, there's so many species that just sort of go sort of unnoticed or they're completely um, misunderstood. And I think I don't know if if you'd agree that a lot of it is it's the same with people call them weeds in the garden. I don't call them weeds. I call them plants in places that humans don't want them to be. And I feel like that's the same with things like spiders and other insects in the house, you know, um, other insects, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> other creatures in the house. Um, you know, if there's a spider in the house, people go, Oh, well that sh- that shouldn't be there. That shouldn't be there. That's not supposed to be there. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. And I've seen it so many times, but, his, this is just my own my own question now have spiders obviously spiders have been around forever I don't know how, how long spiders have been around for maybe you can enlighten us but have they sort of evolved to coexist with us to live in the houses should are they supposed to be in the house or are they supposed to be in the garden or what's what's going on there if, if you know so, what I mean <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so there's a term for um creatures that live in proximity to humans and that term is synanthropic so that uh, there are plenty of of spiders that would be considered synanthropic in this country and all around the world and that is basically that they have adapted to life in and around human structures so um there are several species that we associate with being in buildings or around buildings things like the cellar spiders for example these spindly bad boys who are all up in my bedroom um you don't find them out and about in this country mostly because they prefer shelter and they prefer sort of a little bit of 
not so much warmth, but they don't do so well in really extreme temperatures. So a British winter, they're not going to enjoy terribly much. So the ones that are outside, you will tend to find in and around sheds or like underneath uh, decking or like stair structures or something outdoors or in like storage containers, that kind of thing. Um, But you will find a lot of them indoors. Mm -hmm. Again, the house spiders that we see, you do find a lot of those outside, but they do seem to quite enjoy being indoors you don't tend to find the females inside a house quite so often but you will find them in garages and sheds um the females don't come out and about like the males do they tend to inhabit their web so you might see a big sheet web with like a little um funnel shaped retreat in the back sort of corner of it and she'll be in there so if you've got something like a blade of grass or even because you'd happen to be carrying one of these around an electric toothbrush um, you use something like that yeah <laughs> to like to um agitate the web slightly and she'll come rushing out so that's you'll only ever see them when they're doing that kind of thing it's the males that you see running around when they're looking for females like that so unless you've got the kind of house where you've got a lot of stuff lying around undisturbed for long periods of time or whole rooms that people don't tend to use you won't really find the females indoors mm. um but the males because they wander far and wide in search of females they tend to come inside you will sometimes find the babies in here as well like in in the house as well um but they tend to go by unnoticed as well because they're very shy they're very fast they only tend to really come out at night and again they occupy a web so you'd notice the web before the spider usually so yeah um there are lots of different types of spider that are quite happy to sort of coexist with us and to be around um in and around our houses and structures um a lot of them because you know it's a place where they're going to find prey so if they find a place that you know people inhabit that maybe aren't terribly fussy about you know keeping things clean or whatever if there's a lot of pest insects flies coming and going that kind of thing so like you know even somewhere like around the back of a restaurant or something where they've got bins you're likely to find spiders or weavers particularly will um, build webs across lights outside buildings because they know that those are going to attract flying things like flies and moths and all that kind of stuff you'll find a lot of spiders hanging out where they're likely to get a lot of prey and we provide a lot of environments that attract all kinds of invertebrates that spiders will eat they've cottoned on to that so they tend to be you know quite abundant in areas where they're going to find a lot of prey there are of course other species of spiders that don't want to come anywhere near us and are only found out in very remote parts of the country um or like very wild areas but yeah we do have a lot of synanthropic spiders here so it is almost fair to say that they've sort of developed to live alongside us and sort of coexist peacefully yeah i think yeah i mean when you think about it they were here first we've colonized areas and set up our dwellings and everything and they've kind of had to sort of fit in with that some of them have wanted to get away and gone sort of out into more wild areas others have been like nah sod it there's a light there there's have you seen how many moths there are visiting (laughs) i'm sticking around here i'm gonna get fat like you know so yeah i know absolutely and in terms of i know so I, i know a little bit about ants and you know other things with lots of legs but in terms of spiders I don't really know very much about sort of the the social structures and their sort of the I hate using the phrase intelligence but because people people mis- misinterpret that and they think human intelligence that's obviously yeah. we know that's not what I mean <laughs> so can you sort of tell me a little bit more about that like why are spiders so fascinating obviously they're complex they lead these amazing you know these amazing lives and as you said earlier some of them can live for what like 25 years which just blew my mind when you well, said it. try 40 40 plus years spider in the world she was like 43 or something but no um <laughs> I honestly like there is so much diversity in the spider world. Um, so you've got sp- spiders as an order um, can be split into sort of two groups. You've got mygalomorph spiders, which are tarantulas and similar sort of like heavily heavy bodied spiders. And then you've got what are sort of colloquially known as true spiders, um, which are everything else. So if we put the mygalomorphs aside for a moment and look at the true spiders, 
there is so much diversity in in that sort of area so everything from jumping spiders to orb weavers to net casting spiders to diving bell spiders spitting spiders wandering spiders huntsman spiders i could literally be reeling off this kind of stuff all day but they're all so very different in the way they look the way they behave the way they hunt everything um the differences are everywhere so you can look at them and think right okay well spiders like the house spiders that we've already discussed and the cellar spiders don't have terribly good eyesight so they rely very heavily on being able to sense vibration um the eyes that they do have work kind of like um a light sensor sort of thing so they can sense like light levels and movement of shadow and that kind of thing but they can't see details Mm -hmm. but then you look at things like net casting spiders wolf spiders jumping spiders they've got very keen eyesight because they're visual hunters so they rely on actually being able to see movement not only see movement but recognize the shape of what what it is that's moving so they can tell whether or not it's prey so they can tell is it an insect is it a leaf blowing in the wind you know that kind of thing so when we start talking about the concept of intelligence and like you said, you know, people immediately think of like human intelligence. We're talking about it in a bit more of a broad sense, like the ability to calculate their next move based on what it is they've taken in from their senses. So whether it's visual or, you know, whether it's something that they felt, um, you know, physically vibration, that kind of thing. Um, the ability to decide on what action to take next, how much of that is actually, cognized and sort of thought about she says in inverted commas um and how many how much of it is just like an innate response there's a lot of study that's gone into especially with jumping spiders a lot of people study jumping spiders and try and figure out like how much of what they're doing is calculated how much of what they're doing is just a a response to you know stimuli that they don't really think about i've kept a lot of different species of jumping spiders and they are absolutely incredible like they watch you and they will behave in certain ways depending on whether or not they can see you and whether or not you're looking at them so let me put some context on that i had a species of jumping spider um it was Phidippus otiosus, which is an American species of fairly large jumping spider i had a male and a female and i wanted to try and breed them and so i got the male and the female out of their respective enclosures. There's always a risk that the female will eat the male. So I like to try and watch what's going on so I can hopefully intervene if it's looking like it's going to go south. Um, And so they were out and about and they were, you know, he was doing his little courtship dance. She was responding to it, but she wouldn't take her eyes off me. She was aware of him and she was like, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you in a minute. What's going on over here? And she's looking at me. And I remember reading something somewhere about uh, jumping spiders being able to recognize eyes or, you know, whether it's like recognize eyes as in like an actual eye or just the fact that it's quite a shiny sort of round Mm -hmm. shape or what, I don't know. But like they, I remembered reading something about it. I'm going to try something here. So I got a big plant and I moved it across onto the desk and I sat behind it so that she couldn't see me, but I could peer through the leaves and see what was going on. As soon as she couldn't see my face anymore, she was interested in him. So she was like, yeah, okay, well, we can talk now. You know, it's like, I was still quite obviously there, but she couldn't see my eyes anymore. She couldn't see my face. So she wasn't interested in looking at me. And it's like, that to me just speaks of, there's, there's something going on there that tells her that this thing here that has two eyes or something that she recognizes as a point of interest is is to be sort of monitored you know I was like we don't know what this is so we're just going to monitor this before we get too involved in that and as soon as I was out of the picture like I said I needed to watch them because I didn't want him to get eaten yeah I didn't want to leave the room but I wanted to try this whole like hiding myself kind of thing you know I tried sunglasses but because you know big reflective surface she still was interested in those you know so yeah, there's there's definitely a lot there that would suggest there is a certain degree of intelligence and um, problem solving ability. Yeah. Um, and the jumping spiders are the group to sort of look at if you want examples of that. So another example I can give quickly is um, a genus called Portia, which is a, a genus of jumping spider um, that is a specialist hunter of other spiders. 
Um, it tends to go for orb weavers. So it'll scope out an orb weaver sat in the middle of its web. Orb weavers don't have particularly good eyesight. They rely on being able to sense vibrations. They rely on feeling something in their web and running off and finding what it is, wrapping it up and feeding on it. Um, so they're not terribly aware of their surroundings outside of the web. They tend to rely on the fact that where they spin their web, uh, it kind of removes them from um, where they might usually fall victim to other invertebrates and whatnot that predate on them and yeah you know so they're not really used to being hunted by other spiders while they're in their webs but this these Porsche spiders they are able to find an orb weaver in its web they'll go out looking for an orb weaver in its web they'll see it with their eyes and once they've found it they have to calculate how they're going to jump and grab it while it's in its web and it has to be so precisely calculated. They've got to take into consideration things like whether it's windy or not, or, you know, how much space they've got to make this jump. Like where's the nearest leaf or branch or wall or whatever for them to leap at it from. They've got to figure it all out because if they miss and they get caught in the web, they're finished. It's, it's a very risky sort of way of hunting something that is in a lot of say in a lot of circumstances much larger than them and would be very capable of taking them down if it got the upper hand which would involve the spider getting caught in the orb web you know so there's a lot going on there besides just oh there's food i'm going to go get it you know it's almost like when you think of big cats hunting prey in the savannas you know scoping out antelopes or zebra or whatever and relying on being downwind from them or like is it upwind downwind i don't know whatever wind they they rely on like being able to sort of position themselves so they can't be smelt they rely on not making any noise and blending into their environment and being able to sneak up on these things and ambush them and you see it in spiders as well so it's not something robotic it's thought about you know Mm -hmm. so endless fascination yeah no they really are um I want to pull it back a little bit, if it's okay with you, to something you were talking about earlier that um, is the exotic pet trade. Obviously, when I think of the exotic pet trade, um, the thing that immediately springs to mind, like I imagine uh, a lot of people listening uh, are going to be things like your um, primates. Obviously, I've written a lot about um, sort of the chimpanzee trade, uh, this kind of thing, pangolins. This is the the kind of thing that springs to mind. I will admit that Obviously, it makes sense, I understand, but the exotic pet trade is not something I would immediately associate with spiders. So could we sort of maybe explore that a little bit and sort of talk about any talk about that in general and also problems faced by spider species as a result of the exotic pet trade? Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. Um, In a lot of parts of the world, animals like pangolins and primates, you know, things like lorises and bush babies and all that kind of stuff are taken from the wild and sold. But in the UK, we have all kinds of laws that prohibit people keeping certain types of animals without a license. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't need a license to keep a lot of exotic animals. So so things like snakes and lizards and uh, various different types of invertebrates. So tarantulas and other spiders, praying mantis, millipedes, giant African land snails, all that kind of stuff. Um, You can go to an exotic pet shop, like a reptile shop or something, and they'll have a whole host of different animals for sale that, you know, you can buy and take home and take care of, you know, with relative ease, as long as you've got the right equipment to do so. Most of them will rely on things like supplemental heating or a certain type of lighting or, you know, certain environmental conditions like humidity levels, all that kind of stuff. As long as you can provide, there's a lot of different things that you can get hold of in this country and keep quite easily without a license. And there are very many spiders on that list. The good thing about a lot of the exotic pet trade in the UK is that there are people breeding uh, animals in captivity. So a lot of the commonly encountered species, and this applies to a lot of the spiders as well, are now so widely bred in captivity that they're not being taken from the wild, which is obviously a good thing. But you will still find species that are not terribly easy to breed, but are very attractive to collectors and keepers um, which do tend to come in in imports and are wild caught Um, it's always been something that I've been aware of not so much in the context of spiders it was more when I was keeping reptiles very early on um, to stay away from anything wild caught 
in a lot of cases, depending on what kind of animals it is you're keeping, that might be easier said than done. It's also down to whether or not the sellers are being honest with you about where their animals are coming from. So, you know, there is a certain amount of faith that needs to be put into these people. So anyone who's thinking of buying any sort of animal, I would say do your research about, you know, who you're buying from and make sure that they're reputable first because people do lie. But for the most part, you know, even reputable sellers will often have wild caught animals uh, in their stock. And it it does pose a problem because a lot of the time these animals are being taken from the wild illegally, um, depending on what part of the world they're being taken from. There are certain parts of South America now where it's completely illegal to take any of their animals out of the country at all. Um, I, I don't I mean, I would assume there are certain permits that can be got for people to do it for research purposes and, you know, for certain for certain purposes. But certainly for the pet trade, like they've shut it down. They don't want people doing it anymore. And yet these animals still show up every now and then in the hobby. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. We haven't seen those being bred for a long time. So where's where have all these come from all of a sudden? You're not allowed to take animals from Chile. You're not allowed to take animals from, you know, I, I can't off the top of my head think of all of the different countries that don't allow it. But certainly large swathes of South America are protected and you're not allowed to take animals from the wild and bring them into the pet trade. So where did they come from? People are going out there and doing it illegally and smuggling them, you know, and the only reason they're doing that is because there's a market for it, whether it's people who (coughs) don't really care where the stuff comes from, as long as they can get hold of it for their own personal collection, their own personal gain, if they plan to breed and sell the offspring, some species of spider, like in the tarantula hobby, you know, they, they have this phases and fads and fashions and stuff, you know, it's like there'll be a species that all of a sudden everybody is absolutely obsessed with and has to have. Um, and you'll see spiderlings going for hundreds of pounds, hundreds of pounds, you know, and we're talking about like really tiny spiderlings that a lot of the time have a pretty low survival rate at that age. But people are paying hundreds of pounds for a spiderling the size of your little fingernail, if that, you know, that they've then got to try and keep alive. And it's just like you can see why people continue to smuggle animals out of the countries that have put these laws in place to protect them when that kind of market exists. And that is a large part of the reason why I took a step away from the spider keeping hobby, because there are people out there that I would like to think I could trust who, you know, who are suppliers of this and that. But they have to trust the people that they're getting their things from. And those people have to get them from. So there's a whole like um domino effect mm-hmm. going on here you know it's like the people that i buy from are only one part of the chain yeah. so there's the people who are collecting them are they collecting them legally or illegally are they selling them to somebody who knows that it's illegal or are they telling them that it's you know, you know what i mean there's a whole like chain going on there that you can't realistically trace all the way back so the best thing in my opinion is to just not involve myself so I can have a clean conscience you know um but it it is a problem and there are species that are suffering a lot in terms of you know their wild numbers because of being so heavily collected in the wild for the pet trade you know one of the most iconic tarantula species the um gooty ornamental uh, it's a bright blue and yellow ornamental tarantula from asia um it's endangered in the wild and yet everyone wants one in the hobby thankfully people are breeding them successfully in captivity and so the numbers in captivity are not bad they they're quite easy to come by in captivity but in the wild not so much so you see that's you know that's why we have a bit of a problem with that kind of thing so from that off the back of that can we can we talk a little bit about the you, you mentioned that particular species is endangered what's what's what are spiders looking like in the wild, you know, as a result of the anthropogenic effects on the planet, you know, the climate change, the the exotic pet trade? What is what is the world looking like for spiders? I mean, we have a lot of spiders, a lot, <laughs> a lot of spiders. Um, if you cast your mind back to the very beginning of this interview, I mentioned that at some points I'm counting upwards of 50 spiders in my bedroom of one species so there are some species that are booming because of what we're doing and you know us giving them places to live but there are others that are suffering really badly so on the whole you know we we do have a problem globally with sort of um extinction of lots of different species and like just 
loss of invertebrates and just like you know people talk about save the bees and that kind of thing you know we're losing our bees and it's because of the things that we're doing like that that's not just bees there are a lot of animals that are suffering as a result of what we're doing and you know the bees are a good example for people uh sort of like the masses because it's easy to see how they benefit us. You know, they pollinate plants and that means that we have our crops and everything. It's like without pollinators, we're screwed. Um, it's maybe, it maybe requires a little bit more mental gymnastics for people to understand how something like a spider can be just as important, if not more so than a bee. So, you know, we obviously we need spiders. They keep insect populations, invertebrate populations under control, which without them doing that, we would have problems with things like mosquitoes for example perfect perfect example if spiders aren't predating heavily on mosquitoes we have more mosquitoes more mosquitoes means more diseases Mm -hmm. so you know they are very important so um on a you know sort of looking at the bigger picture all different types of spiders all around the world play into that and are beneficial in that respect one single species of spider may not be you know crucial to the survival of mankind but they're all important. They're all important in their own ecosystems. They all occupy ecological niches that, you know, if they are taken out of that ecosystem, it causes all kinds of disruption and potential collapse because there's now no longer a predator keeping this organism in check and also providing a food source for this organism just above it in the food chain and everything sort of turns chaotic and terrible and it's not good. So, yeah, I mean, spiders are the, every single living organism on the planet has a place in the ecosystem that it is native to. And the more we do to damage that, the more disruption there is and the more knock on effects there are and the more we will feel it sort of as as a species ourselves because of, you know, what we're doing Um to talk about you know the effects of what our activities you know on the planet and you know climate change all that kind of thing i mentioned it to you before we started recording if you cast your mind back to the beginning of the pandemic when pretty much all of australia was on fire um, we had the wildfires in australia that were causing all kinds of problems and everybody was up in arms and panicking about you know the loss of um wildlife which is a very, very important issue to be up in arms about and very reasonable thing to be concerned about. But a lot of people were focusing very heavily on mammals and birds and reptiles and, you know, sort of bigger animal species. Yeah, you know, sort of like the 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 first sort of animals that you think of when you think of australia are going to be marsupials you know kangaroos and wombats and you know all kinds of pouched mammals. Um so you know a lot of people's minds go straight there. But there are all kinds of tiny creatures over there that most people wouldn't even think of that are suffering as a result. And one of the things that I remember reading about at the time was um, a particular type of spider. Uh, It's it's commonly called an assassin spider and also a pelican spider because they're really weird looking. If anyone listening to this wants to look them up, just Google pelican spider and thank me later. They are super cool and really weird to look at. my phone <laughs> I'm gonna look while you're talking <laughs> they are they do look like little pelicans it's really weird um but anyway there was a species of um pelican spider that was endemic to um kangaroo island which was one of the areas that was right so this species was only found on kangaroo island and the fire's absolutely raged in the areas of woodland that they were known to inhabit they are um a forest floor species so they tend to inhabit leaf litter they hunt amongst the leaf litter and with these fires raging uh the concern was that the small population of this particular species um anyone who's interested in these specific species it's zephyr archaea uh austini so zephyr archaea is z-e-p-h-y-r a r c h a e a austini so i know it's a mouthful but if you look that up you can read about um this actually you know what google kangaroo island pelican spider (laughs) that'll probably get you exactly the same result but have a read about it so basically they were worried that this had been completely wiped out and i looked it up a little while ago and i found that um there was an update in november of 2021 um a 
two individuals, a female and a juvenile, were found on Kangaroo Island. Obviously, the fires are not happening anymore, um, but they're still there. And that's super exciting. And the fact that they found a juvenile in November, of, well, I don't know if it was found in November of 2021, but that's when it was reported. But the fact they found a juvenile suggests that there's been some breeding activity relatively recently because they don't have a crazy long lifespan um, and they tend to uh, grow up, you know, from egg to adult within the space of a few months to a year. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a, a very long process. Um, so that's really exciting. So for people like me who are crazy nerdy about spiders, I, I was absolutely over the moon to find out well, you were there. You saw me look it up and get all excited about the fact that, you know, yeah. um, they found them again. So, but that was overlooked by most people because spiders are not something that a lot of people are crazy interested in. They don't care particularly. And that's why I do what I do, share photos of them that show them in a different light to the usual black or brown, creepy, you know, running around in the dark kind of thing. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, beautiful, colorful unbelievably stunning looking spiders if your listeners want to look one up look up the brazilian jeweled tarantula that is an absolutely stunning stunning spider the colors on it are stunning like metallic turquoise magenta like really beautifully contrasted black stripes on the abdomen metallic green and like iridescent white really really beautiful so i show photos of things like that and jumping spiders looking really cute and colorful and just interesting fascinating species that people don't see very often because most outlets are focusing on the the ones that are going to back up their whole spiders are creepy and bad message Mm -hmm. you know I want people to see them as something beautiful and interesting and um yeah fascinating and just mesmerizing absolutely mesmerizing because to do that and to get people to see them that way is a step in the right direction towards more acceptance and more interest. The more acceptance and interest there is, the more people care about these things and the more we stand a chance of protecting them against unnecessary damage to their population on top of what we're already doing to them just through industry and population growth of our own. And, you know, the more we can do to lessen the impact that we have on them, the better. So that's, you know, that's kind of why, why I talk about these things and why I use that example of the kangaroo island pelican spider, you know, as being something that we so, so nearly lost. Mm -hmm. And so few people would ever have even known about it to get upset about it in the first place, you know, like, I just think they deserve better representation. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. As with every every species, I think. And that's exactly why sort of I, I wanted to do this is because largely just to share the excitement of experts like yourself, you know, that you come on and you talk about spiders in this positive way that people aren't used to hearing about. And <clears throat> it's it's my hope that someone somewhere will listen to it and go, oh, OK, yeah, no, that was actually really interesting. And the next time they see a spider, instead of squashing it or running away in horror, they might just leave it they might not go up to it and be like oh cool you're really cool and really fascinating and try and get really involved but you know just to just to have that slightly different understanding and that newfound respect for them I think Mm -hmm. that that that's I'd love that for that to happen so if you're listening you know and you want to be that person then please (laughs) a lot of the time I do get people who talk to me about being arachnophobic and they say you know I'm just deathly terrified of spiders and I, I don't know how to not be, you know? And I'm like, it depends on where that fear comes from. Cause it, it comes from a lot of different places for a lot of different people. You know, sometimes they've had an experience that has left them afraid. Sometimes it's something that they've inherited from family members like we touched on earlier. Sometimes it's as a result of a scare from a film like arachnophobia. I know somebody who has an absolutely like crippling fear of spiders and it is solely because of arachnophobia the movie yeah so you know these things they they come from all different places so it's very difficult to say to somebody straight off the bat who has arachnophobia oh this is how you get over it you know but i i can sort of try and help them in certain ways and one of the things that a lot of people who've you know come to me with this have had some success with is you know they've said like oh i find spiders in my house and they scare me and i don't know what to do i'm like the next time you see one give it a name like give it a name 
And this is one of the few occasions in life where I will fully support anthropomorphizing an animal. <laughs> Give it a name and, you know, start viewing it as, as, an, as a being, like as, as a creature that has a life and that, you know, is doing its thing. It's now gone, whether you like it or not, it's now gone from being this like thing that's there where you don't want it to be to now being a living creature that has a name and is doing its thing. And a lot of people, you know, have come back to me a few months later and they said, oh, I've been watching Steve. He lives in my shower. He's super cool. Like, I'm still scared of him. But like now when I go into the shower, I'm like, oh, hey, what's up, Steve? And like I talk to him and I check in on him. And Some people have come back to me and have said like, oh, my mate Dave's disappeared and I don't know where he's gone. And I'm really sad. And like, this is this is progress. This is amazing progress because this time two months ago, you were like, I hate them. I don't want them anywhere near me. And mm-hmm. now you're lamenting the fact that Dave, the spider who lived behind your sink has gone. Like, yeah. That's awesome. So that does work. So if there's anyone listening who's a bit weirded out by spiders and wants to start being less weirded out by them, maybe start by giving one the next one that you see a name. Try it. No, no I love that. I do that anyway. But in, in our in our house, um, there's there's an episode of obviously I've got young young kids. There's an episode of Peppa Pig where there's a a spider living in the doll's house and it completely takes over the doll's house and it's like living and having a bath and stuff. And they call it Mr. Skinny Legs. So every <laughs> spider that we encounter, my five year old is like, oh look, it's Mr. Skinny Legs. So, that's, <laughs> so if you've got kids and you're a bit scared of spiders, have a look at that episode. Honestly, you know, it's 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 a really nice way to sort of get kids involved as well but um I think before we run over and talk for hours and hours and hours about spiders because I imagine we will um I think we'll we'll end it there but can I just do as I do again with all of my guests if there's just one thing that people can do I know you've said about naming spiders and trying to help sort of get over a fear but if there was one thing people can do to sort of have an have a bit of an impact on the world around them it's a small change just anything what would you what would you say advocate for them And I know that probably sounds really dramatic and weird, but like advocate for them. It's so common for people to just like smash them when they see them or, you know, whatever. If you know of someone who does that, teach them how to scoop it up into a cup with a piece of paper or be there to do that for them. Or, you know, someone that they live with, tell them how to do it for them. So that person is no longer killing them. If you're the person that kills them, instead of going straight to that, if there's someone you can ask to help you take it out of your room or your house, so you don't have to be afraid of it anymore, do that instead of killing it. If it's something that you're afraid of biting you or hurting you in some way, if you're on Twitter, come to Twitter, take a picture of it and show it to us on Twitter and we'll tell you exactly why you don't need to be afraid of it and just just how little damage it can do to you. Try and think of them as a beneficial creature to have around. So if a spider is living in your house, it's living there because it's got food. It's eating other bugs. Mm-hmm. You've got to ask yourself what those other bugs are and whether or not you would rather have them in your house than the spider who just sits in its web and doesn't bother you. So mosquitoes or houseflies, blue bottles, whatever. A lot of the time, other spiders, those cellar spiders that hang out in their webs are unbelievably efficient spider killers. Mm -hmm. So if you're worried about spiders running around the place that you can't see or don't know where they've gone, those guys eat them. So I'm not advocating for keeping them (laughs) around to kill other spiders, but I'm just letting you know that you know there are there are benefits to having a lot of different spiders around and try and keep that in mind so just advocate for them and just try and spare just a split second longer than you might usually just to consider why it's there and what it might be doing that benefits you because they're just as important as bees and butterflies and things that we have this sunshiny rosy sort of um outlook on you know just because they're not all fancy and beautiful the ones that you find in your house doesn't mean they're not important so just advocate for them and try and understand them a little bit more that's brilliant and I think just like me with wasps you know I'll always have that fear of them I saw my first one the other day and I was like (laughs) trying to remember everything that I'd learned recently about them and you know I respect them I think you know they're fascinating but I think if if you can just learn about them and see them in a new light, then that's going to, you know, and I hope that that, I hope we've done that today. You know, as I say, just at least a couple of people can go away and as you say, advocate for them, then I'd be happy. So yeah, me too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming on to chat to me. And thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you.
It was great to have this conversation with T. She is, to me, a truly inspirational woman working in STEM. And I hope that listening to T's journey showed you that science is for everyone and anyone can access a career in science if that is what they wish to do. I hope we've at least sparked an interest in spiders and perhaps, even if you don't love them yet, you can appreciate them and see that once again, as with everything, they hold an important place in the balance of our ecosystem. I mentioned in the conversation that a lot of people see spiders in the home as they do weeds in the garden. However, I always say that there is no such thing as a weed, it's just a plant in a place that doesn't suit a human. We must of course remember that we do not own the earth, we share it with creatures who have been here for much longer than we have and who will no doubt continue to exist here a long time after our time is up. Join me next time for more fantastic expert guests who will share more passion and fascination for their subjects and tell us how we can be involved in the fight to secure a future for our planet. I'll end this with a quote from the book James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl, which I hope helps us to see the world through a spider's eyes. But what about you, Miss Spider? asked James. Aren't you also much loved in the world? Alas, no, Miss Spider answered, sighing long and loud. I am not loved at all, and yet I do nothing but good. All day long I catch flies and mosquitoes in my webs. I'm a decent person. I know you are, said James. It is very unfair the way we spiders are treated, Miss Spider went on. Why, only last week your own horrible Aunt Sponge flushed my poor dear father down the plug hole in the bathtub. Oh, how awful, cried James. I watched the whole thing in the corner in the ceiling. Miss Spider murmured. It was ghastly. We never saw him again. A large tear rolled down her cheek and fell with a splash on the floor. I'm Charlie and this has been Mounting Conversations. <laughs>